into Exodus chapter number two. If you were here last week, last week we began um, we began the series of Exodus, and I believe we will be in Exodus for at least two years as we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It is my aim tonight to get through this whole chapter. However, I've only got about thirty minutes, so it could be possible if I rush, but I'm not going to rush. If you look in Exodus chapter number two, at this point uh, the 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 Exodus is called the the exiting of the, the people of Israel. It's written by Moses. The Pentateuch is called the five books. Penta means five. Five books. Written, handwritten by Moses by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now Moses kept diligent records and we'll see why and how he was able as the people of Israel are nothing more than slaves at this point. As we look into chapter number one of Exodus, the people of Israel are being treated harshly by the Egyptians. 400 years has passed between the point of Joseph and now the people of Israel from going into 70 people to 1.5 million. 400 years have now passed and God has still made a covenant with the people of Israel. And now they're in Goshen. And then all of a sudden these, these um, Egyptians pharaohs rise up and say the people of Israel have grown strong we must enslave them and we must make life harsh on them even though life was harsh for the children of Israel God's blessing upon them caused them to grow this shows you church that even though the waves and the wind may howl around the walls of the church it may attack you and drag your name to the mud this world may tear you down God's blessing is still upon you that God will undergird you and keep you regardless of what culture our nation your neighbor or even this own congregation does to you if God blesses you nothing can stop you amen somebody so now we begin in Exodus chapter number 2, a, a little uh, review. Back in chapter number 1, the Pharaoh has called for all the Hebrew children that are male, two years and under, to be thrown into the Nile. Those wonderful handmaidens, the ones who would come and sit with the mothers as they're giving birth, were faithful to God, believing God more than to eat it to Pharaoh. So of course God blessed those beautiful midwives, but now the Pharaoh has called for the citizens of Egypt. If you see a child two years and under, grab that child and fling them into the Nile. The reason he chose the Nile because there was an old saying throughout all of Egypt, and I want you to remember it. In the city of Egypt, or the nation of Egypt, they say there were no frogs that croaked in the cities or in the nation of Egypt because they worshipped the crocodile of the Nile. They said there is no greater God than the, the crocodile of the Nile. And that's a foreshadowing that you will see later of frogs that will show up and show, show you there is one true God, even over the animal kingdom. But he wanted them to grab these children and throw them into the Nile where the crocodiles will devour them. And at the height of the oppression our God hears the cries of the people. It's just like our God to send a rescuer. It's just like our God to hear the cries of His people. Some people believe what was God on 9-11 whenever they flew those airplanes and those towers. What was God? Let me assure you He was on His throne and He saw it all. Let us continue in Exodus chapter number 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. 
and she saw that he was a fine child. And she hid him three months. Now, notice through the genealogy of Levi. Y'all remember we studied Levi back in Genesis. Levi did a grave and wicked thing. Him and his brother Simeon, about 400 years earlier, remember they went to Shechem and killed a bunch of innocent people. And even on his deathbed, Jacob, he, he basically he garnished their inheritance, showing they were ashamed of him. And he hung his head low when he mentioned the name of Levi. But... Isn't it just like the fallen state of humanity? Through the natural fallen state of Adam, uh, we fell, but through our DNA, Jesus Christ came. But here we see the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ through the fallenhood of Levi. There's one who will rise up, like it says in Deuteronomy 18. 18. I'll probably teach you something tonight about this person that you didn't know. Here he says that the woman conceived a boy's son and hid him for three months. This child had a name before he was named by the Pharaoh's daughter. Have you ever thought about it? They didn't call him baby number three. She didn't name him Moses. His name was Joachim according to some rabbi teachings. J-O-A-M. J-A-O-M-H-I-M. Joachim. And it also means to rise up. That God will rise him up. That's what his Hebrew parents taught him according to rabbinical traditions. And it shadows Deuteronomy 18.18 where Moses himself wrote that God will send a prophet, a savior from amongst the brothers and he will rise them up. So a play on words, he was named Joachim and he wrote about one to come that will rise up and his name was Jesus. So we see here that for three months they hid this child he had a Hebrew name. He was circumcised on the third day. But as you know, babies, they make a lot of noise. And they just don't hide very easy. Whenever the Egyptian guards would knock on the doors, I'm sure this baby was stirred. And it got a little complicated to hide the child whenever they were searching to kill all the Hebrew children. So in faith, I want you to keep your fingers there in Exodus chapter number 2. And I want you to turn quickly to Hebrews Chapter number 11. A little insight written by Paul in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter number 11, all the way over in the New Testament. Turn there quickly. If you're on your application on your phone, stay off of Facebook and be sure to have your Bible opened and ready. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. A preacher loves to hear Bible pages flipping their line angel wings. It lets me know that you're paying attention and you're like a Berean. You're making sure what I'm saying is true and I'm not just making this up. In Hebrews chapter number 11 in the New Testament, verse 23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. We see that his parents that are unnamed, they're a Levite woman and a Levite man, hid him for three months by faith. They trusted God. They knew it was wrong to destroy an innocent child. And last week, if you were here, we talked about abortion, destroying a child in the womb. Hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. they rather die than be guilty of taking a life of an innocent child. 
Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. Now I know we're jumping ahead, but we're going to keep reading here. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. I notice here in verse 26, if you are paying close attention, the theologian Paul writes that Moses' parents, or Moses, re, he wanted the rewards of Christ. you got to see there that Moses was saying that Jesus is God, even in the Old Testament and in the New. That Moses was banking on Christ. Do you see that there? It's, it's so wonderful. In verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. And you might be saying, what does some of that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. We will go back to Exodus chapter number 2 and pick up in verse number 2. Verse number 3. Verse number 3 tells us that the parents who could no longer hide this beautiful child decide in faith... <clears throat> That they will hide him and in faith they will give him into the providences of God. Providence means into the plan and the will of God. That you're trusting God. There's some here who will trust God to, to take away your sin. Let's be honest. God will wash away your sin. But you won't trust God with your finances. You're not going to trust God with your love life or your web browsing. You're not going to trust God with your thought life. You're not going to trust God with your free time and your entertainment. You won't give Him everything. But we're talking tonight about... Moses' parents who gave this child up to God's will. They trusted God in this situation. Will you not do like Moses' parents? Trust God. But I'll lose in the long run. If I do that, I'll lose. Earlier today, me and my sons were talking about a sporting event. And one of them said, well, so-and-so lost. I said, well, y'all so cheated. He said, well, he still won the other one. I said, it's better to lose than be a cheater. And I kind of walked away then. I felt good, but, you know, taught him a lesson. And it is better to lose, if you read Proverbs, it's better to lose than be a cheater. It's better to trust God, even if you lose, to have His favor. And if you lose the favor of somebody else, it's better. So here... They are willing to trust God here, even if they're willing to lose their son. They're trusting God in this situation. So you parent who just can't stop holding on, or you grandma or granddaddy, or you who are worrying, let go and let God handle the situation. Even if you lose them, let God handle it. Uh, that's okay, we won't get no amens, but we'll keep going. Verse number 3. She could not hide him any longer. She took him and made a basket full of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. In plain English, it was mud and asphalt. It was strong materials that she put together, made it waterproof. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds of the riverbank. Can you imagine doing that to your child? It's either throw him in the river or let him float on the river. In verse number 4, And his sister stood at a distance to know what would come to be done of him. Now you must understand his sisters, Miriam, and his brother, Aaron, they don't follow this problem because he's only three months old. But she's old enough to give watch to this baby in this basket. In verse 5, 
Now the daughter of the Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent for a servant woman, and she took it. In verse number 6, when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. Now, I don't, I don't know how long the baby had been floating there. I don't know if it was a hungry cry, but I do know what the Bible tells me in Psalms, that the heart of the king is in the hand of God, and he moves it like a river. To understand that, in Egypt, they would have the Nile, which is the main vein of the water that ran through the nation. But on the sides of the Nile, there were many crops, and there were, really, there were many places where they would put their, their, their grain and their corn. But to irrigate them, they would dig ditches, and they would put planks down. And they would pull the planks up and the water would rush into the ditches, irrigating the fields. What the writer of Psalms was telling us is that in the hands of God, the king's heart can go either way. That he can pull a plank up and that heart would melt. If you find yourself somewhere where it's an impossible thing and you find yourself in the face of somebody who has a hard heart, let me assure you their, hand, their heart is in the hand of God. He can cause it to go Either way, whether it's an immovable boss man or a spouse or neighbor or even a child or relative or even a preacher or a deacon, Sunday school teacher, when God intervenes, you'll know it. Here, the child is weeping. And this woman, whose own father sent forth an edict to throw these children in the river, her heart is broken. Verse number 6, when she opened it and saw the child, behold, the child was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Notice her heart had pity on this child. When it should have been as hard as Pharaoh, because our God is God over all of creation. He's even God over the pagans. Amen, somebody. He's even God over that atheist who draws forth breath and sends out cursings and anger and bitterness and flinging his fist up towards heaven. He's still God over the atheist. He's still God over those who worship other gods. He's still God. This is one of the Hebrew children. Then noticing right on time because our God is always on time. Verse number 7, his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for the he, from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And the, woman, the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the daughter went and called the child's mother. God worked it out. Amen. This was an impossible thing. She was going to lose her child. But by faith, she laid the child in the basket, pushed it out towards the reeds. Into your hand, Lord, I give you this situation. Jesus, I, I'm trusting you. And I'm going to leave my daughter here just to send word back when I'm at home. I don't know, the scriptures don't say, and I don't like to speculate, but I'm sure this praying mama went home and wept with a heavy heart, but also rejoicing, knowing that God was going to work it out by faith because we just read it with our own eyes. In Hebrews chapter 11, she trusted God. Amen. You can have a heavy heart. Yes, weep over the situation, but also rejoice knowing that God hears your prayers. Amen. Oh, that's good to me. We can, we can weep and rejoice at the same time. There ain't nothing wrong. You know, how many, you know how many funerals I've been to where I've seen Christians weep because they miss their loved ones, but also rejoice because they ain't hurting anymore, and one day they will be with them. We can weep and rejoice at the same time. 
The Buddhists can't do that. The Muslim can't do that. For they have no hope. But we have hope. And His name is Jesus. Boy, it rolls off your tongue so sweet. Better than our words are original. It makes it is wonderful, grand, gracious, and kind. Amen. Somebody. All right, let's keep going. Let's, we're all going to try to get through this. Come on, y'all. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. She paid her to raise her own young. That's good. That's good. That's grace. That's God. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Now, nursing in those days, it won't till, it won't like it is today where you stay home on maternity leave, go to, go to work. You stay home from work six weeks and then go back. No, this child stayed with this woman maybe until she was five. He was five or six years old. And in that time, he learned his Jewish heritage. He learned the story when he was five years old. He learned who he was. He learned the bloodline for where he came. He learned his real name. But you know... You're going to see here where somebody named the child in verse nine, num number 10. And the child grew older and she brought him to Pharaoh, the daughter. And she became her son. She named him Moses. Because she said, I drew him out of the water. Moses in Egyptian means to draw out. To draw out of the water. But he had a Hebrew name. And, it, and you know you won't see it here. So this is an Egyptian name. But the thing about this is, it's good to me because it's a foreshadowing. Even though I'm not Hebrew, there's hope for me. For God sent His Son Jesus for the Gentiles to save. When the laws of Moses would slaughter me, Jesus saved me. Now, they don't call Him by His Hebrew name, and that's good to me. And that helps me as a Gentile. For those who don't understand what a Gentile is, it's anybody who's not a Jew. Amen. That they're not using their heritage to be a Jew as a, a banner anymore. That our Savior saves all types of people, all kinds of skin color, all kinds of checkered paths. Jesus saves sinners. Amen. Somebody. So she named him Moses because it means I drew him out of the water. But let me assure you, long before Pharaoh's daughter pulled him out of the water, God drew him. That God decided to choose him. God in His election said, I'll use this baby. Out of all the children, 1.5 million of the Hebrew children, He decided to use this baby. Now, I don't know why. Yeah, He was beautiful. So... That doesn't merit any favor or grace. It just shows me that God shows favor on grace. Shows favor and grace on anybody He wants to. And nobody can stop it. Because I, I know. I, I didn't merit any kind of grace. I didn't earn any of it. And He drew me. Oh, you don't hear me. How do you draw water? You reach in and you scoop it out. That's how He brought me to Him. He drew me to Him. I wasn't looking for Him. Think about it when you were, before you were saved. You were out in the world living however you want, and He drew you to His side. Amen. That's a good Jesus right there. Amen. We'll keep going. Verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out of his place. Now I want you to understand verse number, between the verse 10 and 11. He is now in the house of Pharaoh. And at this point there have been four or five Pharaohs that will take place in the lifespan of Moses. 
Yes, and in, in the, the household of Pharaoh, there was a lot of inbreeding and they, they were bad at, um, uh, uh, bad at health because of the inbreeding because they kept the dynasty tight. They didn't want any outsiders. So, of course, Pharaoh's daughter didn't have any children. She was probably an orphan. No, not an orphan. She was probably barren and she was an only child. So that's why she was drawn to this Hebrew child and was able to give him affection. She adopted him in. Therefore, we can see the wonderful thing of adoption. Did you know adoption was invented by God? Over in India, the Hindu children, there's a caste system. There's a caste. A caste is levels. And that's society. There are orphan children that run the street. They run up and down the street. And if you walk close to those Indian children, you'll see cigarette burns on the back of their necks. You'll see bruises and you see harsh things and they're malnourished and no one cares for them because within that culture in India, they believe that those Hindu children were wicked in another lifetime and they were born again and come back poor orphans. So they treat them harshly. But the idea of adoption is formed by God. Where God takes those who are undeserving and He invites them into the Master's table. Or He sets them there and cleans them, washes them, and gives them a bounty of food, yes, pulling them under His wings. So the idea of adoption is a Christian idea. It's not secular. Not within our own selves. We don't naturally show passion and compassion on anybody. This is something that is ordained by God because congregation, weren't you adopted? Were you born into the household of God? No, God does not have any grandchildren. He simply adopts those who cannot save themselves. Amen, somebody. So we see that Moses had been adopted into the household of Pharaoh. And when he is adopted, he's adopted into the household of Pharaoh. He's also trained in the terms of Egypt. He's also taught how to write and how to hold court. He's also taught how to read uh, far above and superior all the training of all his brothers outside the palace. However, even though he's indoctrinated, he's taught how to write in hieroglyphics and keep, keep uh, history and look at history and dictate it and regurgitate it. God was training him for what he's going to use him for later. For if Moses did not know how to write and had no education and could not hold court, court like in the court of Pharaoh. He could not do it himself later and write the Pentateuch and lead the people of Israel. So we see here already in the early forming embryo points of life, here Moses is being prepared for what God has called him to do. Long before he gets there, God was creating the man for the ministry. You don't understand. Let me explain. Long before the, the preacher creates the sermon, God creates the man. God builds the man. He sends him to the refining fire, sends him through the valley, brings him to the bed of affliction for ministry. There are people who sit here today who are in ministry. You do your own ministry in your own way. But God created you exactly for that. Whether it's encouraging words for single mothers, people who are widows, single life, married life. No matter where you've been, your ministry was designed and created, forged at, forged at the blacksmith anvil by the hand of God. God created you for that ministry. And the wonderful thing is, as a preacher, I get to sit back and see the working and the equipping of the saints of God. 
It ain't about me. This church ain't about me. I get to equip the saints and, and train and teach and theology and give you a strong undergirding and root in who Christ is. And you, you and your ministry, as for an example, just one example, is uh, I get to see the bedside manner of Miss Linda as she'll go to many people who are sick. Now, Miss Linda has her own quirks, and everybody knows what they are, and we love you. But there's one thing about Miss Linda. When she goes see somebody sick in the hospital, she's right there with them. Her bedside manner is sweet and kind, and God has made her just for that. She's even been in the bed herself and been on the other side, so she knows what it's like. Amen. So whatever your ministry is, God has created and crafted you there. God has used you and designed you just for that, just like He does here at Moses. Even though He's in the court of Pharaoh, God will bring Him out. He will draw Him out and use Him. Thank you, Jesus, for a God like that. That He don't just, he don't just say, hey, you don't have enough PhDs, I can't use you. That ain't how it works. He calls the unqualified and makes them qualified. Amen. Amen. By the way, my ordination is coming up this Sunday at 2.30. I hope to see you here. Amen. Here, Moses, he now, he, one day in verse number 11, I got five minutes, we'll get as far as we can. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that way and seeing no one look, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses in his foolishness looked and thought no one saw. But God saw. He did a grave, wicked thing in the sight of God. Thou shalt not kill. You must remember Moses wrote this himself by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now if you were writing about yourself when you want to shade the kind of shady stuff and kind of, no God, I won't write that. I just say, I'll say this, but God had him pen it. And I'm thankful because God used a murderer. Thankful. Thankful that God uses gossips. I'm thankful that God uses liars and thieves and murderers. I'm thankful that God uses pagans and Sabbath breakers and blasphemers. I'm thankful that He uses people like If you've gravely fell before God, He'll still use you because that's all they are. Amen. That's good to me. I fell down in my spirit, but we'll keep going. Verse 12, He looked this way and that way, seeing no one. He struck down the Egyptian and hid in the sand. He wasn't hidden before God. Verse 13, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike down your companion? He answered, who has made you a prince over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Here Moses' grace was gone from the Pharaoh. His grace was all dried up. His favor is done. His mama couldn't get him out of this situation. By this point, 40 years has passed. Pharaoh's about 40 years old. This is the second Pharaoh he has faced. That prince had no sway over the new Pharaoh. That princess had no sway over the new Pharaoh. So this Pharaoh wanted to kill Moses. Moses trained by the Egyptians now bites the hand that feeds him and this Pharaoh wants his head on a spike he wants Moses in the dirt to kill an Egyptian how dare this dog of an Israeli rise up against the Egyptians I want him dead and now Moses flees to Midian he sat down by a well 
Then the priest of Midian, verse 16, seven, had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs of water to the water for their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. We see here that Moses was a strong man. He was a one to cower away. He was mighty. He ran off a whole flock of shepherds who were rowdy and tough to begin with. And this one man stood up for these priests of Midian's daughters. Now Midian is also a relative of the children of Israel. Back in Genesis, I believe it's 18, Abraham had a wife named Keturah. And these are the children of Abraham's wife or maidservant Keturah. They were sent away from Isaac and now they're the city of Midian. And now Moses finds his place on the coast of the Dead Sea with the people of Midian. In verse 18, and when they had come to their father, Real, and many people, verse 18, they see Real, they say, well, that's not his name. Because I read later in Exodus chapter, I believe it's 30-something, 30 32, his name is Jethro. That's, his father's name is Jethro. Well, Real is his last name to, go to, to understand. It's also, it, it means his, his tribal name. Real, but his first name is Jethro. He is a priest of Midian. And he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. In verse 20, he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Now, a little side note of Jethro, later on he will show up again with Moses later on. And some scholars and theologians said that even though he was, a, he was a priest of Midian, he served a pagan god, he also worshipped the God of Scripture. As later, when he sits down with Moses and tells him how to delegate 70 judges, that he uses wisdom and he was a guy, he was a guy of wisdom. He was a priest of wisdom and he honored the God of Scripture. And verse 21, And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zephra. He gave birth to a son and called his name Gorasham. And he said, I have been a sojourner in a farmland. Even Moses here as he's now settled down as his second part of his life. First he got there at 40 years old and he'll stay in the wilderness of Midian for 40 more years. So at the point where he has an encounter at the burning bush in chapter number 3, he's at 80 years old. But before we get there, he knows he's in a foreign land. He even names his children, I'm in a foreign land, so he does not forget. He does not forget where he came from, the heritage of where he came from, and his promises and the covenant of God run deep within his conscience. But I want to look at the last three verses here. This is where I really want to open up. I can't send you home without talking about Israel's groaning. In verse 23, during those many days the king of Egypt died. Now we're going to have another Egypt, Egyptian king rise up. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Let's unpack that for just a minute. Just give me a couple of moments that the groaning 
God does not look at the people of Israel when he remembers his covenant. You look there, he remembers the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't look at the people. He made a promise to Abraham, he made a promise to Isaac, and he made a promise to Jacob. And that was his covenant. And God was going to stand firm on his covenant. And as you look at that, you say, well, that's good for them. All right, God's, he's being true to his covenant with the people of Israel. But we see here that the people groan. And we also see those last words, and God knew. God knew the groaning, and he was rising up a redeemer from their midst. He was already working on a rescue plan. But I want you to look at it like this. God has a covenant with you too, church. He has one that he remembers. And his covenant is not you. He doesn't even mention the people of Israel. He remembers the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made a covenant not with you, but with Jesus. He made a covenant with Jesus. He trusted Jesus. He was pleased with Jesus. And Jesus is the reason that we are saved because God remembers his son when he sees us. He remembers the blood that was shed on our behalf. He remembers and he knows. Know whatever you're facing today. Your neighbor may not know. Your preacher don't know. Your friends don't have a clue. But those last two verses, the last two words, and God knew. God has made a covenant by blood. A promise that He'll never leave you or forsake you through Jesus Christ. Not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for we have a greater covenant than that through Jesus Christ. And He knows. So if you're groaning tonight, there's hope. If you're going through a war, there's peace. If you're going through strife and turmoil and affliction, there's help. And God knows. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Jesus, as we have opened up Scripture, we see you all through.